Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir John E. Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. Before I start, I want to say thank you to a couple five-star reviews. The first comes from, and I'm sorry I can't pronounce the name, but it's spelled S-H-S-F-J-I-F-V. And the other is Glenn from Norwood. I truly do appreciate it. I work very hard on this, and to get these five-star reviews honestly makes my day. You can give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and it really helps the podcast. Now, the podcast is supposed to be coming to an end because Justin Trudeau, as of right now, is our most current Prime Minister. But I've been talking with some people, and they'd like the podcast to continue. So what I'm looking at is actually covering all of the leaders of the opposition who never became Prime Minister. And I would start with Edward Blake and continue on all the way up to Aaron O'Toole. So if you'd like to see that, please let me know. I'd start it as soon as the podcast ended with Justin Trudeau at the end of May. So all you have to do is just email me at craig at canadaehx.com or go to Twitter and find me. My username is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And just send me a message saying that you'd like to see me continue on looking at the leaders of the opposition. It would give it another 30 episodes or so. As well, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do this full time and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. And don't forget, on May 2nd, I'm launching a new podcast called Canada's Great War, where I take a chronological look from 1914 to 1918 at Canada in the First World War. This isn't just covering battles. I'm looking at the politicians and the people and the small towns and cities who dealt with having their loved ones overseas. It's a very comprehensive look and I think you'll all enjoy it. And it's coming May 2nd. Today, I'm looking at a Prime Minister who served very briefly, but made history not only as Prime Minister, but in various other posts. I'm looking at Kim Campbell. And before I get talking about Kim Campbell... I want to mention that at the end of this episode, I'm going to be talking with Caden Liv from Just Watch Me, a podcast that looks at various aspects of Canadian history. It's a wonderful podcast. I encourage you to check it out and subscribe to it. They've appeared on my other podcast, Canadian History X, and I've appeared on their podcast. So that'll be at the end of this episode where we talk about Kim Campbell because they also did an episode on Kim Campbell back in November. Born on March 10, 1947 as Avril Friedra Douglas Campbell to Phyllis and George Campbell, she was surrounded by the law from an early age. Her father was a barrister who served with the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada during the Second World War. Due to the birth location and year, Campbell would become the first baby boomer prime minister and the first, and to date, only prime minister born in British Columbia. When Campbell was 12, her mother left, leaving her father George to take care of herself and her sister Alex. It was also around this time that Campbell began to adopt the nickname of Kim, which would remain for the rest of her life. Campbell would not see her mother again for another decade. At a young age, Campbell first came to the public eye on the CBC program Junior Television Club, where she was a co-host and reporter. While the show only lasted from May to June of 1957, it was the start of a life in the public eye. Thank you very much, Alberta, for bringing Susie in. Uh, tell me, uh, is she a hard animal to keep? No, she's not too hard. She, she does eat a lot of food, though. How much food does she eat? 
Oh, she eats about 200 pounds of food a day, 100 pounds of hay, and about 100 pounds of, uh, oh, apples and oranges, potatoes, and all kinds of vegetables and fruit. Is she a dangerous animal to keep, or is there any threat to your, of your safety? No, this is a very gentle elephant. Uh, once in a while, when an elephant becomes old, it becomes vicious, but not so when they're little babies. Mm-hmm. Tell me, is, would you consider Susie a baby or more of the older animals? Well, Susie is just a little girl, and we consider Susie a baby until she's about 12 years old. It's similar to an adult. They have uh, the lifespan of an adult, of a human being, uh, about 75 years, I would say, in captivity, and about 100 years in their native land. And the reason of that is we don't give them the right type of food as they receive in their native land, so I guess they don't just do so good, huh? Campbell would move to Vancouver with her family, and became the top student at the Prince of Wales Secondary School. While there, she became the school's first female student president. She would obtain a degree in political science with honors at the University of British Columbia, and while at the university, she became the first female president of the freshman class. There's a lot of firsts for Campbell in her life, and we're going to be getting to a lot of them. After one year of graduate study at the school, she was offered the chance to pursue her doctoral studies at the London School of Economics. As part of pursuing her doctorate, which was on the Soviet government, she would spend April to June of 1972 touring the Soviet Union. Soon after the tour, Campbell left her doctorate studies and returned to Vancouver and married Nathan Vinsky that same year. From 1975 to 1978, she lectured at the University of British Columbia and at the Vancouver Community College from 1978 to 1981. Soon after, she articled and began to work as a lawyer earning her law degree with the University of British Columbia, and she was called to the bar in 1984. Campbell's first foray into politics started in 1981, when she began her first of two terms on the Vancouver School Board, remaining until 1984. One year prior to leaving the board, Campbell divorced her husband and married Howard Eddy, whom she would remain married to until just before she became Prime Minister. In 1983, Campbell turned her attention to provincial politics, running for a seat with the Social Credit Party in Vancouver Centre, and she would finish third with 19.3% of the vote. In 1985-86, she worked as the executive director in the office of Premier Bill Bennett, and in July of 1986, she ran for the leadership of the British Columbia Social Credit Party, but was eliminated after the first round. And while she was not elected as leader... Campbell was elected to the provincial legislature in October as a social credit member for the riding of Vancouver Point Grey. During her term in the legislature, Campbell was relegated to the back benches, but proved to be effective as an MLA. Unfortunately, she soon became disenchanted with Premier Bill Vanderzam's leadership. She also broke with the social credit party over the issue of abortion. Campbell has always been pro-choice in her life, and while the Premier was pro-life, this created a rift. When the legislature's in session, Campbell and her husband live on a 46-foot boat. She'd like more time to work on the old vessel, but the 41-year-old has had little time in her life for leisure. She's been an instructor at UBC, a lawyer, the chairman of the Vancouver School Board, a contender for the leadership of the Social Credit Party, and now an MLA for Vancouver Point Grey. She's one of the few MLAs who can speak to this group of French immersion students who are visiting the legislature. But Kim Campbell is better known for one reason these days, and one of the students says it just out of range of our microphone. She says, 
congratulations for your stand against Vandersam's abortion policy. One of the advantages about being a backbencher is that you are not bound by cabinet solidarity, so you can sometimes speak out on issues that concern you. So it's an interesting life to be a politician. Campbell's outspoken stand will probably keep her on the back bench, but one of the reasons she says she had to speak out was because of the Premier's assurances during the last election, assurances that he wasn't going to tamper with the abortion policy. I said to people that I respected the Premier's views and he had a right to express them, and uh, that didn't mean that we were going to do anything about it, and my understanding was that uh, they could be comfortable that there was going to be no uh, initiative on the part of the provincial government if, if uh, Social Credit won the election. So I felt that since there, there now was an attempt to try and make policy, now the, the courts have thrown it out, and I think even, I think the courts will ultimately throw out any attempt we make to use that funding policy in a way that isn't related to health issues. Um, I felt that I, I owed something to my constituents having gone out on a limb on that issue. Did you feel betrayed by, the, by Mr. Van Der Zandt? I think that's much too strong a word. I felt very disappointed. And when she finally did speak out, it wasn't lightly. It took her four days after her caucus had been briefed by the Premier, but there was confusion, she says, about what the policy actually was. I felt it was terribly important, and um, I guess the reason why it was hard is that I value the caucus solidarity because it is that relationship of trust and respect um, and loyalty that enables any individual member of the caucus to be effective. Kim Campbell has tried to keep away from personalizing the argument, but because Bill Vanderzam has taken a personal stand, it's hard for her not to appear to be name-calling. And she worries about those who praise politicians just because they take a strong stand on an issue. There are lots of people who have convictions. Ernst Zundel has convictions. Does that make him admirable that in the face of fact, uh, and overwhelming historical evidence, he stands on his view. I don't find that admirable. In 1988, Campbell chose to leave provincial politics and focus on the federal level. On the federal level, Campbell immediately found success. In the November 1988 election, Campbell took 37.2% of the vote in her Vancouver Centre riding, defeating her opponent by 300 votes. One year later, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney appointed her as the Minister of State for Indian Affairs and Northern Development. From 1990 to 1992, she served as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, becoming the first woman to hold the post in Canadian history. It was in that role that she would oversee notable changes to the criminal code when it came to firearms control and sexual assault. Under her guidance as Minister, a new sexual assault law was passed, that entrenched in law that no means no. She also introduced the Rape Shield Law, which protects a person's sexual past from being explored during a trial. In regards to gun laws, Campbell responded to the 1989 Montreal Massacre, stating that there needed to be more restrictive gun laws. To accomplish this, she had to balance the public outcry over the shooting and also get the support from the lobby of gun owners within her own caucus. As Justice Minister, Campbell was handed the case of David Milgard, the man who had been wrongfully convicted for murder in 1970 and had spent the past two decades trying to exonerate himself. Campbell would state in her autobiography that she came under considerable pressure from the public and was bombarded with questions about the case by the opposition and the media before she was even assigned the petition to direct a new trial for the case. Campbell also had to deal with Mulrooney appearing to take sides in the debate over the case, 
stating that he had met with Milgard's mother and he saluted her for her courage and determination. Campbell would later order a new trial on the murder charge against Milgard, but the government of Saskatchewan announced that it would not do so, entering a stay of proceedings in the case and releasing him from prison on April 16, 1992. In 1997, DNA evidence cleared him of the crime completely, and in 1999, Milgard received $10 million compensation for pain and suffering for being locked up for two decades for a crime he did not commit. In January 1993, Campbell moved to national defense, again becoming the first woman to hold the post. During her tenure as the Minister of National Defense and the Minister of Veteran Affairs, she would deal with the replacing of shipborne helicopters for the Navy and for search and rescue units. At the time, the Sea Kings were believed to be too small for anti-submarine warfare roles, and in 1985, the new Shipboard Aircraft Project Act was introduced to Parliament to find a replacement for the Sea King. In 1987, Brian Mulroney announced the purchase of 35 EH-101 helicopters to replace the Sea Kings. At the same time, the CH-113 Labrador search and rescue helicopters were in need of replacing, and to meet that need, Mulroney tacked on the replacement of those helicopters to the Sea King purchase in 1991. This increased the total purchase cost to $5.8 billion for 50 helicopters. At the time, the country was dealing with mounting deficits, and many questioned the need for new helicopters at such a price tag. And while Campbell had little to do with the purchase, it would stay with her well into the upcoming election campaign. Also during her time as Defense Minister, the Somalia affair erupted. The incident was a military scandal that involved the March 4, 1992 beating death of a Somali teenager at the hands of two Canadian soldiers who were in the country as part of humanitarian efforts. The act was documented in photos, and while it was only coming to light during the last few months before the election, it would become a major issue in the election. Another thing that Campbell had to deal with was sexism in her roles. In an interview with the Canadian Parliament Review in 2017, Campbell would say that as a woman taking that high-profile cabinet portfolios, she occasionally noticed pushback from male colleagues, but for the most part it was rare. She would say, quote, I found the biggest challenge was the Ottawa Press Gallery. The people who cover politics all the time were the worst. End quote. Now with the greater recognition thanks to her high-profile portfolios, Campbell put her name in for the leadership of the party following the resignation of Brian Mulroney. As a heavy favourite, her main challenger was Jean Charest. Campbell quickly went on the offensive in the pursuit of the top job, and in March 1993 she would say, quote, In a democracy, government isn't something that a small group of people do to everyone else. It is not even something that they do for everyone else. It should be something they do with everyone else. End quote. Campbell took 48% of the vote on the first ballot and would win on the second ballot with 52.6% of the vote. On June 25, 1993, Campbell took office as the 19th Prime Minister of Canada and the first female Prime Minister of the country.
Thank you very much. I have a feeling that this time that I'm standing on the podium, the red light's not going to go on when I speak. I want to begin, first of all, by simply saying thank you. Thank you to all of you who have worked so hard and so effectively on my behalf. You have honored me by your trust, and I return it with my complete commitment to you to lead this party in a great tradition. Allow me to begin by thanking all the thousands of volunteers who, who have shown their tremendous confidence in me by working so hard in my campaign. Our victory is their victory. This is your victory, won by your energy and your dedication, and I share it with each and every one of you. I want to pay particular thanks to the people in the Riding Association of Vancouver Centre who believed in me for so long. They have obviously a very special place in my heart, and I want to thank them for having faith in me for so long. Campbell quickly got to work raising her profile in Canada. On July 1, 1993, she was at Signal Hill, Newfoundland, to watch the sunrise at 5.30 a.m. At the event, she would state, quote, This is my first Canada Day celebration as Canada's 19th Prime Minister. I'm also proud to be the first Prime Minister to come to Signal Hill to celebrate Memorial Day with the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. I will never forget the warmth of your welcome, nor will I ever forget this special morning. End quote. Soon after, she flew to Ottawa to take part in Canada Day celebrations, and finally, 19 hours after Signal Hill and 7,000 kilometers later, she landed in Vancouver to attend another Canada Day celebration. She would say, quote, I cannot begin to tell you what pride and what exhilaration I felt while I was flying across the country during most of the day. From the silvery shores of the Atlantic to the familiar shimmering sheen of the Pacific, I saw beneath me the country that was lovingly carved out of her foreboding and fabulous wilderness by generations and generations of Canadians, using the simple but strong instruments called faith, determination, and tolerance. End quote. Now, even though Campbell had been in charge of some of the most important portfolios in the government over the previous few years, many in the media still referred to her as a rookie, which likely had more to do with her gender than her experience. In fact, only eight other Prime Ministers had more experience in Cabinet positions than Campbell did when she earned the top job. Due to the historic win, Campbell was able to ride a wave of popularity with the public during her first few months as Prime Minister. She immediately began to reorganize her Cabinet, cutting it from 35 Ministers to 23, while creating three new ministries out of those ministries. She would create the Ministries of Health, Canadian Heritage and Public Security. Throughout the summer, Campbell toured the country, attending events and other barbecues in preparation for the upcoming election. By August of 1993, she had an approval rating of 51%, and by the end of the summer, her approval rating was far above that of Jean Chrétien, her rival with the Liberals. 
As the 1993 federal election campaign began on September 8, 1993, she quickly saw support for the Conservatives' fall. In her first speech during the campaign, she would say, quote, I am proud of the new team of Canadian women and men that we will bring to this election. I look forward to the debates and the discussions that lie ahead. I believe there is no greater honour than to serve Canadians, and I am seeking that honour, my first mandate from the people of Canada. End quote. By this point in the Progressive Conservatives' time in office, their popularity was at an all-time low due to the failures of the Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accords, the implementation of GST, and the creation of the Free Trade Agreement with the United States and later Mexico. I covered all of these in depth in my previous episode on Brian Mulroney, so I encourage you to check that out. You, the, the question was how long Canadians would have to wait before the unemployment rate is below 10%. One of the frustrating things we're going through in the 1990s is that we have what is sometimes been referred to as a jobless recovery. We have structural unemployment that reflects more than simply the ups and downs of the general economy in terms of demand, for example, and reflects the fact that the economy itself is changing in its nature and that our labor force and our way of doing businesses has not, business has not kept pace with that. So at the meeting of the G7 countries, for example, I mean, we shared our experiences of the industrialized countries facing this challenge of trying to move uh, the labor force into conjunction with new economic circumstances. So I think, realistically, all developed industrialized countries are expecting uh, what I would consider to be an unacceptable level of unemployment for the next two, three or four years. But what we can do as a country, and Canada, you know, we're a very huge country. We have some disadvantages in the sense of being a small population spread over a huge country. But in other ways, we have the capacity to respond to these new challenges. We have a parliamentary system of government that is able to act with real uh, firmness and direction. I think of the American president, and he has all of the, the prestige and, and power of the presidency, but he doesn't have the ability to deliver his policies in Congress. It's very frustrating for him. We're a small enough country where we're able to articulate a sense of national vision, uh, where we can work together, where the levels of government that, that share responsibility for areas of jurisdiction can work cooperatively together. And I think that if we tap the resources that we have in this country of talent, of standard of living, of possibility of, 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 of education and all the things that, that are important for, for, uh, for success, and you and tap that as well as our capacity to govern with real effect when we use the political instruments uh, well, then I think that we can adjust to the changing world economy in a way that will get that unemployment rate down. And I would like to see certainly, uh, you know, by the turn of the century, a country where unemployment is way down, you know, and, uh, and where uh, we're paying down our national debt and there's a whole new vision of the future opening up for Canadians. But it requires us to use the resources that we have. And the first thing that we have to do is recognize what extraordinary resources we have as a country to respond to the challenges that all other industrialized countries are facing. With the popularity of the party at such a low point, Campbell faced an uphill battle with voters. At the same time, the new Reform Party in the West and the Bloc Québécois in Quebec also created the risk of taking votes away from the Conservatives. Campbell would attempt to deal with the issue over the helicopter purchase by announcing that the country would reduce its order to only 43 helicopters, reducing the cost to $4.4 billion with a savings of $1 billion. While the cost was now lower, it did not help the matter and opposition leader Jean Chrétien began to refer to the helicopters as Cadillacs during a time when the government should be showing fiscal restraint. 
As a result, Kretschmer stated that the helicopter purchase would be terminated as part of his party's platform in the election. As the Somalia affair also began to garner greater headlines, Campbell tried to dismiss allegations of racism in the Canadian military, referring to it as youthful folly. Criticism was also levied against Campbell since it took five weeks for a high-level investigation to be ordered into the events. During the campaign, Campbell put the focus on the debt rather than jobs, and there were also issues with her inability to distance the party from the incredibly unpopular Brian Mulroney, who many felt had not fulfilled his promises during the nine years that he was in power. By October, the Liberals appeared to be on their way to a minority government, with some pundits believing that they could obtain a majority. At the same time that the Conservatives were less popular than the Liberals, Campbell was still more popular than Chrétien. It was at this point that the Conservative campaign team began to create four attack ads that focused on Chrétien, and John Tory, the campaign director, produced the ads quickly, and few people, including Campbell, had a chance to see them before they were aired. The second ad would go down in history as one of the most decisive in Canadian history, and it appeared to mock Chrétien's Bell's palsy facial paralysis, and it generated an immense backlash from the media and the public. Even other progressive conservative candidates called for it to be removed, which Campbell did, while disavowing responsibility for the ad. Rather than lower the popularity of Chrétien, it had the opposite effect, resulting in a surge of popularity for Chrétien, who responded to it in a speech where he stated that he had accepted his physical defect since he was a child. Now Campbell gets most of the blame for this, even though it likely had very little to do with her, while John Tory kind of gets away scot-free, even though he was the one who pursued it. Is this a prime minister? The ads show unflattering still pictures of liberal leader Jean Chrétien, all close-ups. How can he believe that you can kickstart a modern economy by fixing some roads? The ads are completely negative. One suggests Chrétien would be a national embarrassment as prime minister. There is no mention of the conservative's leader or conservative policies. Jean Chrétien, a prime minister? Think twice. The conservative party reach a new low. Liberals are calling the ads a sign of political desperation. They try to make fun of the way I look. God gave me a physical defect. And I've accepted that since I'm a kid. It's true that I speak on one side of my mouth. I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides of my mouth. Unfortunately, I suffer from a Bell's palsy. Political parties are notorious for stacking radio call-in shows during elections. But the response heard on programs across the country would have been difficult to organize. For the uh, PCs to use us to try and gain ground, um, I'm now without a doubt not voting for them. Hours after the ads began to run, conservative candidates began trying to distance themselves from them. The judgment to use uh, negative advertising uh, to this extreme is bad judgment. Several candidates issued apologies, in effect joining a rebellion against their own party's national campaign. If it has injured Mr. Kretschmer in any way, I apologize. I felt it was totally inappropriate and uh, in poor taste, and I wanted to apologize to Mr. Kretschmer. To make a caricature of a national party leader uh, is simply uh, putting a distance between uh, me and this party. Ken Riddell has been analyzing political ads during the campaign for Marketing Magazine. 
Fidel says the ads are unlike anything he has ever seen in Canadian politics. It's a lot more personal now than it ever has been before. And uh, Canadians, you know, I think uh, are not used to that sort of thing. Early Friday, top conservative strategists were trying to defend the ads, saying the pictures were no different from those in magazines or newspapers. Far from making fun of anybody, they're trying to ask a very serious question, uh, and they simply use pictures of the man about whom the uh, questions are being asked in terms of his competence. But before the ads had run 24 hours, the Prime Minister withdrew them, under questioning, apologizing. I would apologize to Mr. Cretin, to anyone who found them offensive. It certainly was not the intention to be offensive. The intention was to deliver a very important message in this campaign about Mr. Cretin's competence as a leader. In the 1993 election, the Progressive Conservatives suffered the worst defeat in the history of Canadian federal politics. In 1984, the party had won the largest majority in Canadian history, but only nine years later, the party had only two members elected, and Campbell would lose her own seat in Vancouver Centre in the election. She would state, quote, I'm glad I didn't sell my car, end quote. And from Audrey McLaughlin to Kim Campbell, who is now speaking to her supporters in Vancouver Centre. She is trailing by more than a thousand votes in Vancouver Centre tonight. Her party decimated across the land, only two seats left. But a majority government to two, they won't even have official party status. For Kim Campbell... Thank you very much. Thank you. A disastrous Thank day you. You for her party. Taste, Here are her remarks. Gee, I'm glad I didn't sell my car. <laughs> my dear friends, Canadian democracy has spoken loudly and clearly today. And I accept the judgment of the Canadian people with disappointment, but without reservation. My first words are to thank all my friends and supporters in Vancouver Centre who've worked so hard on my behalf, both during this election and over the last five years. It has been a privilege to serve you in Ottawa and to represent your interests in the House of Commons. I share the disappointment, however, of all of my colleagues who were unsuccessful tonight, and I offer to them my thanks and my congratulations for their contribution to Canadian democracy. The clear winners of today's election are Mr. Chrétien and his party, and I congratulate them. Campbell's defeat marked only the third time that a Prime Minister lost his or her riding at the same time as the party losing the election. But while the party only took two seats, it picked up two million votes, good for third place among parties, and only 2% behind the Reform Party. At the time of the defeat, many levied the failure at Campbell, but in subsequent years she has been seen as a Prime Minister who inherited a party on the decline from one of the most unpopular Prime Ministers in history, who resigned only a few months before a new election was called. One humorist, Will Ferguson, would state, quote, Taking over the party leadership from Brian Mulroney was a lot like taking over the controls of a 747 just before it plunges into the Rockies. End quote. Journalist Robert Fife, who would later write a book on Campbell, stated, quote, She was handed a poison chalice. All the odds were stacked against her. End quote. 
Later in life, Campbell would criticize Mulrooney for not allowing her to succeed him before June of 1993. It was later found, through the secret Mulrooney tapes book, that the progressive conservatives knew that they would lose the next election, and they wanted a, quote, scapegoat who would bear the burden of his unpopularity, end quote. On December 13, 1993, Campbell resigned as leader of the party. In Ottawa, it's official. Kim Campbell has resigned. She is stepping down as leader of the federal Tories. Her announcement comes six months to the day that she was chosen as party leader. She gave no reasons for her decision other than to say they are complex. Just a few weeks ago, Campbell hinted she would be staying on until June, but some party members have been complaining about her leadership and they claim to have helped her change her mind. As Laura Lynch reports, the party will now turn its attention to rebuilding under a new leader. Last June, my party chose me as its leader at the national convention at a national convention here in Ottawa. It was only six months ago that Kim Campbell stood before a cheering crowd of Tories. Many saw her as their ticket to re-election, their best chance to maintain Brian Mulroney's nine-year grip on power. Today, Kim Campbell sat before a room full of reporters trying to rationalize, trying to make a virtue out of losing power and losing it badly. What our party has now is a remarkable opportunity, if we're wise enough to seize it. Freed from the constraints of government, which puts an enormous pressure on any political organization because you can't set your own agenda. You have to deal with the realities before you and things arise and situations occur that take your time and energy and you have to deal with them and that's part of governing. Similarly, even being the official opposition, much of your agenda is set by what government does. But others in the party aren't viewing the loss or Campbell in such charitable terms. They blame her and they wanted her out. Today they got their wish. Some, like Alberta Premier Ralph Klein, are welcoming the move. I think it was probably a good thing. Uh, the party needs a, a fresh new start, and uh, now, I guess, is, is the time. Campbell called Klein this morning to warn him of her impending resignation, but she didn't inform one of only two Tory MPs elected to the Commons. Elsie Wayne of St. John was clearly frustrated to have to learn from reporters that her leader was leaving and clearly annoyed at the disarray the party is in. Right now, I, I guess I'm the deputy something and the deputy this and the deputy that, and there's only two of us, so I don't know what a team we've got going here, but we've got two of us and we've got a lot of work to do. The party's executive is expected to ask Jean Charest to take over as interim leader tomorrow. He's expected to say yes. Today, though, he was saying very little. I have not been asked, and there'll be a national executive uh, meeting uh, tomorrow morning, and uh, we'll take it from there. As for Campbell's future, she's talking about teaching, writing a book, maybe even doing commentary in the media. Though she says it's unlikely she'll return to public life, Campbell still has one sobering reminder of the costs of being a politician. Her former campaign manager, defeated MP Ross Reed, says she still has a debt of about $250,000 to the party, a debt left over from the days when she won the Tory leadership. Laura Lynch, CBC News, Ottawa. With the election loss, Campbell holds the third shortest term as Prime Minister, behind only Sir Charles Tupper and John Turner. Since Brian Mulroney had not moved out of 24 Sussex Drive, Campbell became the first Prime Minister since 1951 not to live at the residence. Even with the loss and a brief time as Prime Minister, she still had an impact on Canadian politics, and the changes she made to the size of the federal cabinet would be retained in the Chrétien government. In 1993, Chatelaine named Campbell as its Woman of the Year. 
In August of 1996, Campbell was appointed by Prime Minister Jean Chrétien as the Canadian Consul General in Los Angeles. That same year, she published Time and Chance, her autobiography, which became a Canadian bestseller. In 1997, Campbell married her current husband, Hershey Felder, an actor and playwright who specializes in the portrayal of classical and American composers on the stage. Most of us know her as Canada's Consul General in Los Angeles, as a former Prime Minister, as an accomplished lawyer. But Kim Campbell is a woman of many other talents, one of which she demonstrated in Hollywood last week. The UCLA Center for the Performing Arts featured a new stage musical which was co-written by Ms. Campbell. It's called Noah's Ark, and it premiered as a work in progress. We reached the playwright in Los Angeles. Ms. Campbell, congratulations. It seems that you got rave reviews for this performance of the musical. Well, certainly it was it was very positive, and people who are knowledgeable about the theater were very excited about what we had to show. It's a work in progress. We're not uh, we're not at the final final stage yet, but it's it's got some good stuff in it. Well, it seems that you're already paving the way for <laughs> uh, yet another career for yourself. Well, it's funny. This is actually a return to something that I used to do before I went into politics. And uh, there are people, for example, who knew me from law school for whom this is what they remember me for, that I you know, was very theatrical and used to write and direct the shows that we put on every year. And they think, oh, yes, uh, didn't you do something else after law school? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, little... so it's coming full circle. <laughs> uh, I must say, though, in terms of the rave reviews, was it a, did you feel a bit uncomfortable? I mean, it, it might be awkward for someone to say, I really didn't like the work of the Consul General uh, of Canada. Well, I think it's important to understand that I'm very much the junior creative partner in this exercise, that uh, the composer uh, and uh, the writer of the book is a, is a young musician called Hershey Felder, right. who is a Steinway concert artist. He's a Montrealer. He's been in the United States. He was in New York in 1990, and he's been in Los Angeles since 94. And that many of the people there came because they are huge fans of his. He did a one-man show uh, at, uh, at the official residence in January that just knocked people's socks off. I mean, we had invited our A-list, the top people in, in from you know Hollywood and business and uh, uh, the various areas that we deal with here who so you sort of totally blown away a little bit yeah little bit. they were totally blown away so they were very happy to come and I mean the music is really spectacular Campbell remain as the Canadian Consul General in Los Angeles until 2000 and during that same time from 1999 to 2003 she chaired the Council of Women World Leaders which was a network of women who had held office of Prime Minister or President and she would also chair the steering committee for the World Movement for Democracy from 2008 to 2015. In 2004, Campbell was named one of the 50 most important political leaders in history in the Almanac of World History by the National Geographic Society due to being the only female head of government from a North American country. From 2014 to 2018, Campbell served as the founding principal of the Peter Lougheed Leadership College at the University of Alberta, and she also worked with the International Women's Forum and Club Madrid. On August 2, 2016, Campbell was appointed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to chair a seven-person committee to prepare a short list of candidates to replace Thomas Cromwell on the Supreme Court of Canada. Since Campbell, there has never been another female Prime Minister of Canada, and today Campbell says that the acceptance of women in high-profile positions in Ottawa has only improved slightly since 1993. She would tell the Toronto Star, quote, There is no question that women are as good as men. 
and many women are better than some other men. But the ability of people to see women in those roles is the problem. End quote. Following the unveiling of her official portrait, Campbell said that she was honoured to be the only woman with her picture in the Prime Minister's corridor. And she would state, quote, I really look forward to the day when there are many other female faces. End quote. Now, as I mentioned, the episode isn't over yet, because I'm going to be talking with Kate and Liv from Just Watch Me, a podcast that looks at various aspects of Canadian history. I've appeared on the show, they've been on my other podcast, Canadian History X, and we're going to talk about Kim Campbell, because they did an episode about Kim Campbell. So I'm going to get right to it. What made you decide that you wanted to kind of focus on her for your for an episode on your show was there something about was it the fact that she was the first female prime minister or was there something about her life that was just really interesting i think for us um you know being a female-led podcast we were we were interested in her being the first female prime minister and I think we were also interested in what, ha- what happened in the election ultimately and why she didn't get uh, reelected and what the story was there. I think when we decided to do a podcast, one of, the, one of the topics that in my mind we were always going to do was Kim Campbell. Mm-hmm. Like Kim Campbell's been in the making for, for a long time and it's one of our earlier episodes. And I was always kind of, curious and I didn't know much about her other than what I'd learned in history class which was you know that it was a great failed election um, and the first and only female prime minister of Canada and it does not just does not just kind of like beg to be under like does not just beg to be investigated okay well (laughs) why did all these things happen and you don't really get into that in grade 10 history class Craig it doesn't really Mm -hmm. it doesn't usually go that deep so uh, when we look at that election, I mean, that's obviously what everybody thinks about when they think about Kim Campbell. It's the fact that, you know, she lost her own seat. She was only prime minister for, I think, like 132 days. But should that define her, uh, define that her career, that she was the first female prime minister? Or, or the fact that uh, she, uh, you know, she was the first justice, female justice minister. She brought in a lot of uh, important laws related to gun control, to uh, sexual assault and other things. So do we focus maybe too much on the fact that she was prime minister and kind of forget about the fact that she was a trailblazer in other ways? Well, I think that the problem ultimately with Kim Campbell was that she was only there for a really short period of time. She wasn't someone like Joe Clark, who then, you know, had a very short Mm -hmm. term, but went on to have a long career in politics. Right. Um, And so I think that's kind of the problem is that we have such a small sample size. And yes, she did some incredible things, but she doesn't have that legacy in politics. And so I think that what tends to happen is that we focus on how she left rather what she rather than what she did there. Um, that's certainly been my impression when I uh, when I hear other people talk about her. I don't I personally don't think that she deserves a lot of the hate that she gets um, by any means. And I think that had she stayed longer, we wouldn't talk about her in the same way that we do now. Or not we do, but <laughs> other people. Do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I certainly think we don't focus on her achievements, which maybe we can broaden out a little bit, Craig. Of course, we have the gun control legislation, and much of that is still in place today. That happened when she was attorney general. Um, we have some of the uh, amendments to rape shield laws, which which um, you know put a greater emphasis on uh, victims throughout uh, the criminal prosecutions of um, sexual assault. Um, but, but again, like the problem is that it, the fact is it was a short time. And I think that we don't have so much to focus on because she wasn't in government period for very long. Like she's somebody who had a very quick rise, as you know, she was mm-hmm. an MLA for, I don't even think at a full term. Um, and then she went to, fe- went to federal politics for one term. Like her entire political career is, is quite short. Um, and I think that Yes, there's not as much to focus on, but I also think that unfortunately there's like an unfairness that she had to leave so early too. Mm-hmm. So can we really hold over her head that she doesn't have so many accomplishments <laughs> when she didn't have very long to have too much of a shot? And, and when she was in BC, of course, you know, she wasn't, um, she didn't really get on with the premier at the time. So she doesn't have many achievements um, as an MLA. Like she wasn't a cabinet minister in BC, as you know. So there's, there's not a lot to pick from unfortunately, because it was such a time-limited career. Um, I think it's a really good point about the, about Joe Clark and kind of comparing her to Joe Clark and that they both kind of were, were young. They were these fresh faces that came on the scene. And um, obviously there's some difference with, you know, Joe Clark was leader for a longer period of time. But um, if he had have lost, you know, the, that election, then yeah, we probably wouldn't think about him as being this statesman who was in, in power, or not power, but uh, served the country for so long. So absolutely, if, if she had of won that not a won the election but at least won her seat and maybe helped rebuild the party that probably would have uh, definitely helped her legacy do you do you think that being prime minister was that a positive or a negative on her overall legacy because she she was a diplomat afterwards she was a cabinet minister before like she she has had a very important career but there's that one thing that you know is it a positive or negative being the prime minister after Brian Mulroney for example Okay, I think that <laughs> I I maintain that had Kim Campbell not have won the leadership when she did and not become prime minister at the time she did, she would probably still be in politics or she would have been in politics for much longer. Um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that election went the way it did. Um, and I, I don't think that she's completely separate from that and maybe some of you know, her naivete and how she dealt with the media and all that. Um, but I, when I look at the way she kind of carried herself in that election, um, she's clearly, she was a rising star who rose too quickly and, and, and just wasn't ready, in my opinion. And, and I think that we can maybe explain some of that with a really short stint in politics. She found herself top job like less than, I don't know, like what, seven years into her political career or eight years into her political career. Um, maybe that sounds like a long time to some people, but, but it really isn't. And her, the time she spent in each of her cabinet posts were small too. Like she didn't hold any of those for a full term either. Right. She moved from AG to, uh, defense to something else. Like she did a lot of different things. Um, I really think that she just kind of rose too fast before she was ready. And because it was such a crushing defeat. She had to go away forever, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that had she not won, 
she, she would have lasted longer. I, I really do believe that. I mean, I think that she must have had some personal uh, fulfillment, I think, carrying the title as the first um, female prime minister. I think that's a, you know, a huge accomplishment and it's something to be incredibly proud of. And I think it is what you know has helped her through keeping and maintaining a career and um, regular guest spots on the CBC when uh, you know we deal with women's issues in Canadian politics. So you know she's someone who I don't think personally um, is having a tough time. She's had some amazing you know diplomatic positions that honestly sound quite dreamy. Um, you know, especially that LA position. job seemed so lovely. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah. So you know, it seems like it, despite the fact that you know, she hasn't been president in Canadian politics, like, you know, Canadian federal politics, uh, you know, currently, or, you know, after she had that defeat, you know, she's, she's doing okay. And, yeah. uh, and having a, you know, good life. <laughs> Seems fine. Seems, Seems okay. Doing okay. I guess we could compare it to uh, like Jean Charest then, and the fact that she beat, you know, Jean Charest in the leadership race. And he, is the one who him and one other person. I don't know. I don't remember who the other person is that won their seat, but he did have a longer career because he didn't win that election or that uh, leadership race. And if he had of, it could have been roles reversed because she, she was incredibly popular. Like she, she, when she was first uh, became leader it was like 51%. So people really did like her, but I think she was just tied too much to Brian Mulroney and, and what he did to the party and, and how horribly unpopular he was at the time. And I think as well as some of the, the political dynamics and sentiments throughout the country too, of course, you absolutely have the unpopularity of Brian Mulroney and the Conservatives. You have uh, anger and downright confusion about the GST. Uh, Craig, I loved in your Brian Mulroney episode, you had clips from regular people <laughs> talking about the GST and they were like, we're just not going to charge it because we don't really understand how. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. So you have, you have Brian Mulroney, hated gst um ex like extremely high unemployment and then you have a western conservatism growing we see the, the birth of the reform party led by stephen harper which eventually combines with um the progressive conservatives to become the conservative party of canada and then you see lucien bouchard um and lessening support for conservatives in quebec there's a lot going on in the country as well in addition to mulroney being unpopular and to and that's kind of the point that we we land on and, and how I think of Kim Campbell is that there are certainly mistakes made in that campaign, um, but there was so much working against her mm -hmm. in terms of how the conservatives were viewed and how conservatism was changing in Canada at the time. In regards to the mistakes, uh, I think probably the first political thing that I remember was the Chrétien uh, attack ad and the news surrounding that and obviously there's you know did she know did she not know it was I know it was pushed out there really fast so personally I don't think she really knew too much about it but again how do you not if you're the leader but how much do you think that actually played in the defeat because some people say a lot some people say it didn't play anything because she was more popular than Christian at the time so did it did it help matters or did it hurt matters if if I recall correctly, I think that the face ad, as it's now called the face ad, was was more of a last ditch effort. I think it came later in the campaign when they were already floundering. Um, I think if anything, it was probably the nail on the coffin. Um, there had been other gaffes before, as you know, there's the serious issues gaffe where <laughs> she said an election campaign is no time to talk about very serious issues like that, which, of course, 
is pretty ridiculous. Um, she also said, oh, famously on the day the writ drop, she's asked about how she's bringing hope to Canadians when they're such high unemployment. And she talks about how we'll hopefully by the turn of the century, <laughs> unemployment <laughs> will be under control. Um, like on day one. So there was a kind of a, a bunch of things, like it was kind of a snowball effect, I think culminating in the face ad is kind mm -hmm. of how it's narrativized. And I think that's pretty fair. The face ad was a last ditch effort that went pretty poorly, <laughs> obviously went really <laughs> poorly. Um, and, and whether or not she knew, and Liv and I have discussed this too. I mean, if she knew it's bad, if she didn't know, it's very bad. <laughs> yes if she okayed an ad she hadn't seen terrible like there's there, the face ad i think any way you swing it for her is is is, is pretty bad for her <laughs> yeah i completely agree with that it's like th there was no win out of how she deals with the face ad like it's it's just so um horrible really that there's just no coming back from it i don't think mm -hmm. yeah even like for today that's at least in Canadian politics, that's a shocking ad to see. And I can't imagine, you know, 1993, uh, you're watching TV and you see essentially, you know, it, it's an attack ad of how he's talking in, in many ways, whether you want to interpret that like that or not. So it must have been just horribly shocking for, for people to see this sudden horrible attack ad like that. But yeah, I mean, whether she knew or not, like you said, uh, it, it, I, no matter what, it was it's a bad situation for her. Yeah, she's not and, getting away scot-free from that. <laughs> and and for those listening, it's on YouTube. Go, go go watch it. Yes. It's pretty it's it's just kind of uncontroversially mean. It's mean. It feels yeah. that oh. way. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. It, it's it, it's very surprising to see that. So um I'm I'm wondering how it even got aired, but it didn't air for very long. I think it was off the air in like 24 hours. So yeah. They pulled it right away. I think they had they got phone calls like minutes of it airing. People were yeah. people were outraged. The one thing I will say about that ad is that I do feel like we don't give enough blame to John Tory and his mm -hmm. place in the ad because I think it's very unfair that we lay all the blame at Kim Campbell's feet for that ad, and yet John Tory continues to be the mayor of Toronto. And I'm sorry, make incredibly stupid TikToks to this day about um, his whatever. <laughs> he's doing in Toronto so I you know I just ha I have to take a lot of issues with John Tory and I want everyone to rally against um putting some blame on on him for the horrible face ad I, I guess it could be my rant for today <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess John I Tory is like the unsung villain of this story also yeah <laughs> yes, yes. nobody true. knows that he was the campaign manager at the time um, and he was probably knew more about what was going on in this campaign than Kim Campbell. Like campaign was already set up to go by the time Kim Campbell became leader. Um, he like he has a lot of he has a lot of blame to shoulder for how this went. Without a doubt. Um, I guess it could be like a microcosm for the election as a whole, the, the, the face ad and the fact that she does get a lot of the blame for it, uh, whether she knew about it or not. While other people who actually, you know, made the ad, put it out there like you said, get off scot-free. And then when you look at the election, it's kind of the same thing. I, I wouldn't say that, I guess, people got off scot-free. The, the party was was decimated in the, in the <laughs> poll. But she, again, gets a lot of the, the flack for that because she was the one leading it, even though Brian Mulroney came along and he was still living at like 24 Sussex. She never had a chance to even live there. Uh, she had two and a half months to prepare like 
I don't see any way how she could have possibly won that election. Uh, so I guess what were you when you did your episode, like when I when I did mine and then when I listened to yours, there were a few things that really surprised me about her. The fact that she was on CBC in like 1957, which is really interesting. Like there's an actual video and it's a really cool little video. Um, what were some of the surprising things you you uh, you learned about her that you maybe didn't know? Well, that her name's not actually Kim. <laughs> oh, yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> to start off with the low hanging fruit. Um, that was she I, gave it to herself. She named herself that. That's very, that's, I, I like that. I think that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a couple of surprising things that we don't, I don't know if Katie and I want to get into. Um, <laughs> what, the Russia? The Russia. <laughs> Uh, that was kind of interesting and, and kind of fun, but we do want to want her to eventually come on our show. So we don't want to, you know, say anything too bad about her. We, we don't want to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> she, I think that I didn't know how much of a moderate she was. I, I knew, obviously I knew she was a conservative. I think I knew she was from the progressive wing, but you know, she's, she's been pro-choice since the eighties, which is, like strange obviously she was a social credit she was um she was in the social credit party in bc which we won't get into because it's pretty hard to explain what the social credit party is um and the social credit party probably agree with that but so she's not like a traditional conservative in that sense um but but she certainly comes from the liberal liberal wing of the progressive conservative party um she's been calling herself a feminist also since the 80s um, I think she, I don't know what at the time, but these days she's, she's really hard on the conservatives about climate. She's a, she's a, a staunch environmentalist for sure, uh, while still being a fiscal conservative. And I think what's interesting about her is that I always say like, there's not really a place for her <laughs> in our politics, <laughs> which is so increasingly polarized because mm -hmm. she, she doesn't really, she doesn't really fit in anywhere. And I, I think that's really interesting about her that we could in the 90s we still had politicians like that um who had kind of who were so so kind of so moderate and centrist and held these you know strange beliefs you know when compared to their colleagues without a doubt uh one thing that did surprise me was how quickly she did try and like get into the role of being prime minister and i, I mentioned in the episode where on on canada day you know she's in newfoundland at 5.30 a.m. watching the sunrise, celebrating Canada Day. And then she's in Ottawa. And then by the evening, she's in Vancouver. Like that's a 16-hour day, 7,000 kilometers. That, I can't imagine doing that. She must have been just exhausted by the time she got to Vancouver to keep ringing in Canada Day, you know, across the country. That's uh, So, I mean, it does show that she was like definitely jumping into the role as, as much as she could. So there's a positive. And despite you know, obviously her hard work on the campaign, there's lots, she's getting lots of media coverage talking about how, oh, she looks really tired. Like she just seems exhausted. And this is, this is a really common trope in a lot of um, the way that we cover a lot of female politicians is that uh, there's always questions about their stamina, which I love stamina is, <laughs> is so coded. And, you know, she, she wasn't immune from that either. And I have to think to, to jump into being prime minister and be immediately on the campaign trail when you've, you know, you've never done it before and without even your own staff, something that that strikes that kind of uh, stuck out to me when we were researching her, her as well is that, you know, she had to work for, for this staff that she didn't know anybody. She had met John Tory like a couple times before mm -hmm. he becomes her campaign manager. Um, these are Brian Mulroney's people that she really inherits. 
she's expected to work with them. And then of course um, they're leaking to the media that she's difficult and hard to work for and all this stuff. And I have to, it's that kind of thing. It's so hard to vet. And, and maybe she was difficult and hard to work for. <laughs> we just don't know, but it really kind of, I have to, we have to scrutinize it because you have to imagine that all these people had a relationship to like very gregarious, big personality, like fills a room, Brian Mulrooney. And now their boss is a woman who's pretty green in politics generally. And the staff has to deal with her. So I think I think that the way that she was covered in the campaign and despite so despite her hard work, even the way that the campaign was set up was in part working against her. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the long hours and yeah. flying to three different places in a day. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could do that. I'd be, I'd be wiped. <laughs> Um, kind of in relation to that, uh, when Brian Mulrooney came in, you know, he he only had uh, one year experience in Parliament, and and like you said, nobody they they alluded to it, but more it was like, wow, isn't it amazing? This guy who's only had a year in Parliament, he's already Prime Minister and has the biggest win in Canadian history. But then with uh, Kim Campbell, they were calling her a rookie, even though she had uh, more. I think it was more cabinet posts than like eleven other Prime Ministers uh, at at that point. So. And then she, she did mention she faced sexism sometimes in cabinet posts. Um, but do you feel like she did face a lot of sexism in her role, whether it was in cabinet or as prime minister, and especially on the campaign trail? And you did kind of answer that. Yeah, I think, I think it's kind of undoubtable when we look at not only Kim Campbell, but a lot of female politicians, that they're held to a much higher standard than their male counterparts. And, um, you know, often you hear them saying this, that they feel like they have to constantly be uh, perfect and that there's no, uh, the public seems to have less patience for them, um, especially when they make mistakes. And, and we see this because um, women, Women politicians, of course, there's much smaller sample size, but they only tend to survive one term. So they're surviving half as long as their male counterparts. And what that should probably tell you (laughs) is that we're not patient with them. And so there inherently is going to be um, a bias in the media coverage of you know, what we're saying about them. Because I mean, when you look at someone like Justin Trudeau, he said blunder after blunder after blunder, and he's still in office, you know, like, I just don't think, uh, you know, I, the face ad is not that dissimilar from like the blackface scandal that mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau had, you know, and, and he seemed to survive that. And of course, you know, there's a lot of other factors that are playing into that. Um, but, you know, the the, the harsh criticism that, that uh, Kim Campbell gets time and time again for, um, you know, being anything less than perfect, I think is just, is completely unfair. And, and we saw that again recently with Krista Freeland um, and when she took, took uh, office as the um, finance minister, <laughs> sorry, I don't know where that came from. Uh, when she took office as the finance minister, you know, we had this intense media scrutiny of, um, you know, is she qualified? She hasn't been on Bay Street. She's not, you know, she's not up for the job. And of course, you know, we talked about this in our Christia Freeland episode that, you know, she's incredibly qualified. And we've had uh, like other candidates in the past who've Mm -hmm. been way less qualified than she is. So, I mean, in my mind, all that to say is that, you know, the situation was different and the cards were stacked against her, but I just don't think that there's there's any argument to be made that that sexism didn't play into it. Without, yeah. 
there's petty stuff on the campaign too, right? There's lots of, as we, again, we, we often see with female politicians, although I think it's probably getting better, is lots of comments on her appearance and, and what she's wearing. Like there's a pair of earrings, which she really liked and she used to wear, apparently she wore a lot during the campaign and they were fixated on that. There was comments um, and now it's about her figure and, and how she was, her clothes were fitting her and, and that was pretty commonplace. Um, absolutely sexism played a role. <laughs> Uh, when I don't really like, you know, the, I say this cause I, I will probably rank the prime ministers once I'm done all this, but, um, I don't really like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really like the ranking of prime ministers because some people don't have a chance. Like Kim Campbell is usually ranked as the worst prime minister. And that's kind of like, if I was hired as a CEO of a company and the next day the company went out of business and they call me the worst CEO. Well, I didn't really have a hand in sinking that company. I just came in at the wrong time. And you see that with a lot of prime ministers, uh, Kim Campbell and Joe Clark, they come in at the wrong time. Um, if they, she had to come in at a different time, uh, maybe she had to come in and amazingly say in 1984, or she came in and benefited from the, the growth of the 1990s that Chen was able to benefit from. Uh, what kind of PM do you think she would have been? Would she have been, uh, like you said, she was a moderate. Would we have seen many changes uh, with her as prime minister and would have had a long-term effect of maybe having more uh, women premiers and uh, even like uh, maybe another uh, female prime minister? Katie, why don't you start? Cause you know where I'm going to end. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I, I knew she was going to make me answer. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly how I have her in my notes. She's she was the wrong place at the wrong time, Prime Minister. Unfortunately, what kind of leader would she have been? Well, she is very. I think, despite being criticized for lack of policy, which was also which is always kind of leveled at conservatives, especially Brian Mulroney too. At that time, everyone was like, "Well, you don't have any policy." Um, she actually is. She's very policy minded. Like she's very weedsy type person like you know she actually reads you know she, she reads the things that she's given when she's in mm -hmm. the job and she's she's a very um she's a very policy-minded person she's very principled I think that maybe gets her maybe gets her in a little bit of trouble and <laughs> I think too is that she's a little bit she's kind of perceived as being wishy-washy which I think sometimes was honestly I think a lot of times it was honesty. Like when she said, made that comment about uh, unemployment <laughs> turning around at the turn of the century, like it's because she, that's what the economists were saying. Like she mm -hmm. wasn't going to lie. And it's funny because I mean, at this point she's always called, she ca says that she always wanted to be a different kind of politician, which doesn't really mean anything. And at this point, hearing something like that is a little hard to stomach. Cause it's like, okay, a different kind of politician, but <laughs> She certainly is like very high-minded. I think that she would have, I think that she would have <laughs> wanted, had like really wanting to do really sweeping change that would probably have been very difficult for her. Um, and she would have had been like micromanaged it and that might've gone poorly. That's such <laughs> a bad answer, but that's, that's what I believe. I think, no. And I think too, she, she would have advocated for the rights of women. If you look at the, like her achievements as a G gun control, um, 
piece too. Like she always frames that in like, well, when you're talking about um, gun control, you're talking about domestic violence, um, the gun control is a domestic violence problem, right? Because it becomes much more fatal. She's, she's got a, a great quote about that. Um, she kind of tends to frame things um, in, in how they affect women. And I think that we probably would have maybe had some, I, I would hope some more progressive, um, more progressive like feminist legislation from her or at least attempts to do so. I, I, I really do think that she, she is principled and she believes things strongly. I think she probably would have been focused outward too. She's, she's like a foreign policy nerd too. So that would have been, I'm sure she would have been criticized for spending too much time uh, focusing on foreign policy and not enough on domestic <laughs> policy if she had lasted longer um, because she's very passionate about, uh, I think, democracy around the world that's still one of her um one of her her, her big drives uh, in, in her work that she does now i think in terms of um your second question if she had lasted longer would it have bred uh, more female politicians i think unfortunately no um <laughs> because i think we often have have this romanticized idea that when um when you know women or other kind of min minorities come into different spaces that they're not traditionally represented that you know once one person is in it's going to be able to it's going to open the door to more, more of uh, more inclusion. But in a really fantastic podcast um, by Malcolm Gladwell, The Revisionist's History, yes. he talks about this idea, I do know it. Um, <laughs> he talks about this idea of moral licensing, which is essentially that um, the definition is uh, past good deeds liberate individuals to engage in behaviors that are immoral or other, uh, or, you know, otherwise kind of bad behavior. So basically when we do something good, it gives us ourselves permission to do something bad. And mm -hmm. so um, he gives this example of a study where um, people who identified as being Obama supporters actually were more likely to engage in like kind of racist behavior because they had, you know, publicly supported this, you know, black man that in, in the privacy of their own home, they weren't necessarily, you know, Mm -hmm. supporting those types of values. And so I think it's, you know, we, we have so many examples of this around the world where we see one female prime minister and then not subsequently 10 female prime ministers, but that they've been the only one. Mm -hmm. um, and throughout his, this particular podcast, he um, talks about the, uh, this situation in New Zealand. Um, I'm saying this, was it Australia? Now I'm like totally second guessing myself. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but I think uh, all this to say is that I think that that's exactly the situation that's happened here with Kim Campbell is that, you know, the door opened a little bit, everyone patted themselves on the back, said horrible things about her, treated her in, let's be honest, a pretty sexist way, and that the door ultimately was slammed shut. Um, and, you know, we see that because here we are 20 eight years later, and we've never had another female prime minister, and we've never even had a female um, who was elected in a general election as prime minister. So, you know, these two things seem to be at great odds, but I think when we think about this concept of moral licensing, it kind of does um, uh, consolidate those, those uh, what seems to be a juxtaposition. Um, and it's, and it's a shame because I, you know, we want the door to be open. We want more people to feel welcome, but I think, you know, unfortunately, um, it's, 
what women are up against is, is, is great. And it's, it's all, I think a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I think now after having a first, we don't have the same groundswell for the first, there's not the same excitement to get that to happen in Canada. And we can, and I think that's exactly what moral licensing is, is getting is that now we can sit content that we've had the first, and now we don't feel the same push to involve women in politics. When even looking around right now, we don't really have, do we have, uh, we don't have any female leader of a, a, a party with party status in, in federal mm-hmm. parliament, right? No. Um, we we had Elizabeth it. May, but she's not in. So, uh, oh yeah, well, yeah uh, but party status, one. yeah. So she wouldn't yeah. have been party status. Um, yeah. But but there's not the same push and the same mm-hmm. excitement to, to have the first because now we've had it. And, and that's not to say that and I don't think there's a majority of Canadians being like, well, we tried a woman once and it was bad and we're not doing that again. Like, I don't think that's happening, but there's just not the same drive for it. Whereas I'm telling you here, I'd be really excited, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think there's the same, there's not the same push and political will for the first woman because we've had it. Mm-hmm. Even though she didn't really get a fair shot, you know? She's, no, and she absolutely didn't. I mean, 132 days is, is not a fair shot. And most of that's campaigning too. It's, you can't yeah. enact any legislation or anything. Um, and so you kind of answered it, but um, you know, it's been 28 years. We've had three female governor generals. We've had uh, several uh, female premiers. I think at one time, like half of Canada had a, had a female premier. I don't think actually we do at all now, which is amazing. <laughs> Um, and I kind of probably know the answer to this, considering the, the episode that I was on on your podcast. Uh, but do you think maybe we will have one soon? And if so, who do you think will be <laughs> who do you think will be uh, maybe the next uh, female prime minister and hopefully elected female prime minister? Well, you Which know, our Christia will <laughs> be the your next answer. prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I mean. So. We're obviously on uh, Christia Freeland's team with this one. And I mean, rumors are that uh, that Justin might do the next election and that there might be a leadership race in the Liberal Party. But rumors aside, um, I, th- I do think it's really time. And I think that the trouble is we want to make sure that we're putting forward women who have the, um, I think, appropriate uh, portfolio or corporate experience to to help them succeed too, because I think that oftentimes um, when we're just pushing forward people for this for the sake of um, representation, we're often setting themselves them up for success. Uh, sorry, we're often setting them up then for failure. And so I think that um, that's an incredibly important thing to think. So I think you know, looking around, who's who's there right now, it's a little disheartening um, because <laughs> we don't have a lot of women who I think are um, ready at the helm other than Christia. So I think we got to, you know, we're obviously really rooting for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, you know, a number of um, uh, females in um, provincial politics who who are doing really great. I mean, I'd love to see Rachel Notley um, back as the premier again, um, you know, and I think it's great that she's kind of survived um all this time you know despite losing the election she's still around she's still you know making a splash so i think that's fantastic and the work that she's doing is so great and um we've had a a lot of really great female uh premiers so you know the (laughs) the more (laughs) representation we can have the better but i think you know it, it, it has to be um 
the right thing. And what we, I think need to be doing is like at the grassroots level and at the bottom levels, thinking about how we're fostering women into politics, how we're fostering women to grow within politics and encourage them because, you know, you, you can't just pluck people from, <laughs> from thin air, you know, you want to support them and make sure that they're going to be successful so that the next female prime minister hopefully has a really long tenure. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. <laughs> And not to be, so we don't appear partisan, we should say another an, another woman we'd like to see in politics again is Ronna Ambrose, um, who was, of course, was interim party leader uh, for the Conservatives. I, I'd like to see her, you mm-hmm. know, find a reason to leave private practice and, and come back to politics. Um, but and, I think... Oh, yeah, we represented all three parties. Okay, we're good, we're good. Because <laughs> Rachel Notley is NDP. Yeah, That's good job. Right. Okay, yeah. Good. yeah, way to good. go. I want to make sure they were represented. <laughs> but looking around, it, it's a little bit disheartening. Again, other than Christia, um, there's not too many women in high profile positions in government right now. And we don't have any other um, female party leaders and we didn't uh, even, of, federal, of federal parties right now. And we didn't, of course, even talk about the governor general situation of mm-hmm. it all, which is just, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, it's just hard, you know what I, and this is, and this is like also the, the, the appropriate vetting system. And you get into this, this, uh, this really difficult conversation of like, we don't want the vetting system of Christia Freeland where everyone just attacks her for no real good reason. But with, um, you know, um, our current governor general, and then of course with, with, with Julie Payette, you know, she wasn't properly vetted. She was too quickly rushed through because she seemed so good on paper. You know, she's an mm-hmm. astronaut. She's from Quebec. You know, she has all of these amazing qualities and on paper. Um, but, you know, when you look underneath the hood, there's a lot of problems. But that would have been like two phone calls. That, exactly. To but figure that stuff out, though. That was like wild. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's exactly. A, that's the- a couple phone calls. That's that's, yeah. that's less than an hour of work <laughs> to find out the other the stuff that had gone on at previous workplaces. Yeah, no, but that's exactly the point. It's like we want we to make sure we, we're, you know, going through the appropriate vetting system so that when we put women in positions of power, that we're setting them up for success. We're encouraging future success of women. Um, anyway. Rather than having them inherit a mess like Kim Campbell. And that was my, and like, that's always my fear with Christy Freeland as mm-hmm. we have Trudeau scandal after Trudeau scandal, you know, is he going to resign one day and she takes it and then, everybody hates the conservatives and the party falls again. That's, that's my fear with her. And I hope that I, and I'm sure that she has uh, <laughs> the good sense and counsel to, um, if that is the, if that is how Justin Trudeau <laughs> ends his <laughs> stint as prime minister, um, that she takes a little bit of pause before just running into the job to clean up the mess because women too often, you know, end up being responsible for cleaning up messes and then, somehow get blamed for the mess itself. Uh, I think we touched on that on your uh, the episode that you guys did. So obviously go check out your podcast. Uh, just watch me and listen to that episode because it's a really good episode and not just because I'm on it uh, talking about <laughs> Canadian history, <laughs> but uh, absolutely because what the best thing for her would be to, to have, you know, Justin Trudeau lose an election, go through a period of, you know, four or whatever, five years of a conservative government and then come in and be elected. Um, but problem with that is a, I don't think the conservatives will probably be elected because they're in disarray and Aaron O'Toole is not a very likable person to a lot of people. So we're st- looking at like 10, 15 years before she's going to have a chance to be uh, prime minister. And then that's almost 50 years of, you know, between Kim Campbell and, and, and Freeland, which is amazing. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. the, 
The last, <laughs> the a long time. It is. Uh, the last question is if if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to to Kim Campbell, whether it's <laughs> don't run, <laughs> you know, just wait a little bit, uh, join the reform party. If you could just say one thing to her, uh, what would it be? I mean, I have to be honest. I would not purport to um, to know what Kim Campbell want her wants and desires are. I mean. <laughs> To be honest, like, like I said before, you know, she's gone on to have a good career as a diplomat and, and do amazing things, you know, be a speaker at, um, you know, great. Like, I just think that her quality, you know, her quality of life might be such that she's very happy with how things turned out. So I don't want to purport to um, <laughs> tell her that she should have ran at a different time and been the prime minister. Although I wish that for her. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to overstep if she's, you know, pleased with where she's ended up. God, what could I tell Kim Campbell? <laughs> I've heard from a couple of nobodies. Um, <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's and maybe that's the answer, right? Is that she had no choice but to run. Like, what else was she going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and she probably would have lost, had she not ran, she probably would have lost her own seat just like her colleagues, and then we would not be talking about her at all. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, Brian for the leadership that is, I don't know. Should she have joined the reform party? I don't know. Maybe she, she wasn't, she was pretty high profile. Maybe if she had joined the reform party, she could have tried to make them see sense about climate, but that probably would have gone really poorly. But so maybe, maybe for the country that would have been better, but I don't really know if she would have had much of an impact there because again, I think she would just have been swept up and she was too progressive for them. I don't think she would have fit well there either. Which again goes to my point that you know politics and, and conservatism was was shifting quite a bit at this time. So what should she have done? I don't know. I don't know if there's anything <laughs> she could have done. And so I don't pro- think she could have stopped herself from running leadership. Because so she, where, she, where else would she have have gone? Mm-hmm. So she essentially took the the best route for herself at the time, like you said, the reform party probably wouldn't have done well in that. Um, she would have lost her seat most likely, anyways. So. We wouldn't even know. So it's better to be prime minister for 132 days than not prime minister at all, because you were still prime minister. You can still put that on your resume. It's definitely helped her in her career afterwards with various posts and diplomatic posts and things like that. So, you know, all's well that ends well, I guess. Yeah. And right now, is she still on the Supreme Court uh, committee? Mm -hmm. Where she gets to choose Supreme Court justices like that sounds like a great job. I think that's a huge honor. <laughs> I think for a former lawyer, a QC, it's a huge deal. For the attorney general to have that job um, after leaving politics sounds sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think that being a diplomat sounds great. Like great. I, I you know, don't you? Was she how? What was she doing as a diplomat? Was she just in LA for a few years? Yeah, but like what was that she doing. Who knows? You meet dignitaries. She was having a lot of parties, parties <laughs> at the mansion in LA. I don't really know what she was kind of diplomatic a, work she was up listen, to. I don't I don't see any problems. That sounds like the perfect gig. Where do I sign up? Like if I only have to be <laughs> prime minister for a hundred days or whatever to get that gig, I'm doing it. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good gig. Los Angeles. <laughs> what's gonna happen in Los Angeles that's a diplomatic incident? So really you're just hanging out there you know, making music with your husband. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please leave a rating and review.
If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, KimCampbell.com, Toronto Star, Wikipedia, CBC, Library of Archives Canada, No Second Chances, and the Canadian Parliamentary Review. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.